The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Welcome to worship. This is Chase Bowers. Uh, he's our global missions pastor. You just met him a little while ago. I'm Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new to TBC, there's a welcome center outside to your, to your right when you exit. We'd love for you to stop in. We can find out who you are. There's a card in there to fill out. And uh, if you're a dude, uh, we have a special night away tomorrow night. Uh, there's still a handful of tickets left to join us. I'll be there. Look forward to hanging out with some of you guys. We're going to go to the Round Rock Express game. Uh, if you're a Rangers fan, there are a bunch of Rangers guys there playing, actually, because Rangers are on the skids right now. So anyway, join us there. Uh, pick up a ticket, and uh, we'll do it. Family fun night tonight at Family Junction. And now, welcome my dear friend and fellow pastor and colleague from uh, far deep East Texas, Chase Bowers. Thank you. Uh, I am from far deep East Texas. So I've got to ask you, have you ever been misunderstood? <laughs> I had a friend from church in East Texas where I was serving as a youth pastor. He was on my team, great guy. He and his wife served faithfully. Sometimes he was misunderstood. And we had a, a thing similar to family night at our church, and he and his wife came in. We had a meal before, and I could tell he was kind of flabbergasted, and she was clearly frustrated. And they said, we, we need to talk to you after service. And I said, okay, what's wrong? And he just kind of looked up at me, and he said, I just tried to tell her I was really proud of her for losing weight. And I, I looked at her, and she said, he said I'm not nearly as fat as I used to be. <laughs> he, he was misunderstood. I, I read, a, read a story of a little girl who was misunderstood. Her name was Jillian, and she was eight years old, and by the time she was eight, she was already considered an at-risk student. This is her as an older lady. But when she was eight, teachers were frustrated because she was always tapping her toes. She was always getting up and moving around the room. They might be teaching a lesson and they thought she wasn't listening when she would get up and look out the window. Though she was, she was not upset by the trouble she got in. She was used to it by the time she was eight. But it disturbed other children and folks thought something was wrong. Now this is back in the 19. 30s before there was a diagnosis of ADD. And so no one really knew what was going on, but at the school's request, her mom took her to get a psychological assessment, and she kept hearing that she probably needed to go to a special school, and she didn't know what that meant, but the tone when she heard it didn't sound very good. And so she and her mom walked into a an office of a psychologist, and it was a large room with big bookshelves and leather books and a large sofa at the end of the room. And the doctor asked little Jillian to go sit on a sofa while he talked to her mom. And, and so while he was talking to her mother, he was watching her. Her feet didn't hit the floor. It was hard for her to stay still. And they just began to talk a bit more. And so he looked over at her mom and said, let's talk outside. And as he got up, he said, Jillian, you can stay in here for just a moment. I need to talk to your mom in private, but I'll turn on the radio so you could listen. So he and the mom stepped out of the room, and as they stepped out of the room, he pulled the mom aside and said, now your daughter can't see you, but you can see her, just watch. And within 10 to 15 seconds, she was up moving around the room with a, an, a, 
incredible grace to her steps. And she continued to dance. And the doctor and the mother just stood there speechless. And after about two or three minutes, he looked at the mom and he said, your daughter's not sick. She's a dancer. Put her in dance school. And so the mom listened to the doctor and put her in dance school. And it turned out that she was the best dancer in that school. And frankly, at eight, she was just happy to go to a place where everybody else had to move around to learn. But she was the best dancer in the school. So she went to another, and then she went to another, and then... Gillian Lynn was accepted into the Royal Ballet in London, and then she met a composer there she worked with. His name was Andrew Lloyd Webber. And Gillian Lynn, the little girl with a high-risk future, became known as the lady who choreographed Cats and the Phantom of the Opera. See, when she was who she really was, no one really understood. She was misunderstood. And so today, as we continue... Our series, more than her and more than my, my poor friend in southeast Texas, maybe more than anyone who's ever walked the face of the earth, Jesus was misunderstood, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's look in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, at Peter's great confession. As we, we look there... We're going to read verses 13 through 25. So let's hear the Word of God together. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are now Peter, or Petros, the rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we need to hear that today, that this church that Jesus is building all over the world will not be prevailed against by the gates of hell. He says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that He was the Christ. And from that time, He began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and to be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Father, we come to You in Jesus' name, confessing that we want to follow Your Son in a day and moment in our world where brokenness and violence and anger abound. So God, today we pray for peace, and we pray for peace in our city, in our state, in our nation. 
But then we pray for peace in Turkey and in France. God, we pray that you would empower us to bear the fruit of the Spirit of the Prince of Peace. Lord, that that we might receive what your word calls a harvest of righteousness that's sown in peace. So deep in our hearts, Lord, let there be peace that passes all understanding. You tell us you'll keep in perfect peace those whose minds are stayed on you, God. Your son said that, that the peacemakers are blessed ones because they'll be called the sons of God. And so, Father, we confess that it gives us peace to know that we could be called your children. So we pray that your peace would rule in our hearts today as we receive your word taught, that we'd be thankful, God, that we know that before you told Jeremiah that you knew the plans for him to prosper him and to give him a hope and a future, you told him to seek the peace of his city, so help us to seek the peace of ours, God. We need you to do that. As we know and understand you more, God, stir in us as a church toward love and good deeds as we pursue paths of peace. Raise up people in our body from a variety of ethnic groups that would lead out in making peace. And God, bring glory to your name in our city through not just Temple Bible Church, but through local churches dispersed all over. That that we'd be catalysts for gospel-focused peace, Lord. We need it. And today, we need to understand you, and so we pray in Jesus' name that you'd help us to do that. Amen. Well, Peter is there with his disciples teaching them, and the the first thing that we see when we read this text is this, that Jesus is misunderstood by the world. Jesus is misunderstood by the world. Matthew 16, 13, and 14, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. They knew there was something special about him, but they didn't know quite what. And it really didn't matter if you were a Jew in the first century, or a Muslim, or Hindu in the 21st century. It doesn't matter if you think Jesus is a great prophet or one of the gods. If you don't understand who he is, then you really miss the most important thing. So Peter lists these good things that maybe someone who didn't know Jesus might think a prophet, John the Baptist, one of those guys. But there are other ways in which Jesus is misunderstood by the world. Some say he has a demon. His his mom and brothers come to get him after one of his sermons because they think he's gone crazy. Now, I've had, I've had people come to me after I preached who thought I was crazy, but my family never did. He was misunderstood. When he was born, Herod misunderstood what he'd come to do, and he thought he was a threat to his kingdom, so he killed all the little boys in Bethlehem. Now, make no mistake about it, Jesus was a threat to his kingdom, just not like he thought. See, Jesus was misunderstood by the world. That's what this text shows us. But Peter gets it. He understands who he is. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it looks like it's going to be a really, really good day for Peter. God's revealed this to him, and it's just been amazing. But then we see just a few verses later, Jesus isn't just misunderstood by the world. He's also misunderstood by his followers. Verse 22 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It's not a good idea to rebuke the guy you're calling Lord. Peter didn't understand what he had come to do when he said, the Son of Man or Jesus must suffer many things. He must be crucified, die, and on the third day raise from the dead. He's misunderstood by the world and he's misunderstood by his followers. Well, what was the issue? What was the issue? It wasn't just Jesus' followers. It was a lot of people in Israel that day that really misunderstood what Jesus had come to do. And that's probably why the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, were most frustrated. It's because when they were looking for a Messiah, they were looking for someone who would come and be king, they were being oppressed by a pagan government, and they wanted someone who would overthrow the Roman Empire and bring Israel to national prominence again, and that they could live according to the law as they saw it again. They had forgotten that though they were God's chosen people, He had not set His love upon them because of anything amazing in them. He had done it for His namesake, the Scripture tells us. He made them to be a light to the nations. And so perhaps the Pharisees had forgotten that, we know, and His his followers were just looking for the Messiah, and Peter believed he, he was the Messiah, but he didn't understand the path that Jesus was being called to, and ultimately the path that He was being called to. And when, when you read this, it's easy really to ask the question, but how could they have known? How could they have known? So when you look at some Old Testament verses, you can see that there are ways in which people might have misunderstood. When He would come, the Scripture said, and make the captives free and give sight to the blind, they were looking for healing and hope. But I want us to look back at Isaiah 53 so that we can see how they would have known what this mission would have looked like. We're going to look at Isaiah 53 and just kind of read through some of the verses in there to see how maybe he could have been understood, but they just missed it. They were looking for this warrior king, but when Isaiah 53 speaks of the suffering servant, the one who would come, here's what it says, and here's how they misunderstood him. They misunderstood him in his identity. In his identity. So in verse 2, Verse 2, it says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. That doesn't sound like a king. It doesn't sound like the Messiah. It's certainly not the Messiah the Pharisees were looking for. Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is not the king they're looking for. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he opened not his mouth. It says, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of his people? 
See, Israel was waiting for someone who would rescue them from Rome, but He came to rescue them from their sin. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3.17, the Son of Man has not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. They misunderstood His identity, that He had come to be Savior and King. Well, we're going to talk a bit about how maybe they misunderstood and we misunderstand. But before we do that, let's talk about who He is. Jesus Christ is God's Son and He's Israel's Messiah. And that matters. He couldn't have been a Savior from China or England or Bangladesh or America or Mexico or Paraguay. He fits at the center of God's redemptive story that He's telling starting with Adam and Eve and then Abraham and his descendants. He's God's Son and Israel's Messiah. He's the Lamb of God, John the Baptist would tell us, that takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah said He would be the Prince of Peace. That He would be a wonderful Counselor. He's Everlasting Father. He's Mighty God. He's the one who is tempted as we are in every way, yet He was without sin. He's the Logos, the Word of God, who is with God in the beginning. He's the exact representation of the glory of the Father. Hebrews 1 tells us, and John 1.18 says this, that no one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, begotten of the Father, that's Jesus He explains God. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And He rose from the dead. And a lot of people saw Him in His risen state. He's King of kings and He's Lord of lords. And He's going to come and set all things right. See, they misunderstood who they were looking for. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we do it personally and sometimes we do it corporately. Just like they did sometimes personally and sometimes corporately. Personally, some people thought he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets or just a teacher sent from God. Corporately, they thought he was a Messiah that would wipe out Rome. He's misunderstood. Sometimes today, maybe we misunderstand Jesus like Like we think of him as a cosmic sort of Santa. And that if I just love him and trust him enough, he'll make me healthy and wealthy. We call that a false gospel. That's the prosperity gospel. We would reject that gospel. But here's the reality. I think sometimes there's a danger that we just live like it's true. He's the Messiah. I've confessed his name. I'm kind of following him. So surely He's going to meet my expectations. Surely He's going to meet my expectations. I mean, they're not really unreasonable. Surely He'll meet them. And make no mistake about it, Jesus will come and set all things right and He will put an end to injustice and apathy and sin and orphans and wars and shootings and pain and suffering. But sometimes He just doesn't meet our expectations, church, and We might even ask a question like, where are you, God? Where are you, Jesus? Do you see what's going on? 
And make no mistake, there is room for lament in the Christian faith, but I wonder if maybe his answer back to us might be, where are you guys? Where are you? And praise God, when I look at at Temple Bible Church, I can answer, we're at Feed My Sheep, and we got a whole bunch of backpack buddies that we're going to make. They're out in the in the foyer today that we're going to pick up and we're going to be there and be your presence. And we've got one of our long-term workers. I can't say his name this morning, but I can tell you his turkey is under coup. He's getting in the air and flying there to train pastors for the church in Turkey. But personally, if he asks, where are you? Where are you? Or as Gary Hagen, the president of the International Justice Mission, asks, are, are you on the bench or are you getting in the game? Are you on the bench Are you participating? None of us want to get to heaven and spend our first hundred years there picking splinters out of our backside from warming the bench all our lives, do we? We we just don't. Nobody, nobody wants to do that. I did that enough in junior high basketball. I'm done with it. But the, the reality is the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now in us, and we were created, Ephesians 2 tells us, for good works in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And so Christ makes us the restorers of our city, the chosen ones to share the good news. So whether you're a believer or not, whether you're a believer or not, don't misunderstand that Jesus wants to work through people to change the world. Maybe, maybe you're not a believer. And, and you look at this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago in a semi-nomadic place in the Middle East, and you just, just go, Jesus doesn't know anything about me. And he doesn't say, he doesn't have anything really to say to my life. He doesn't understand me. So let me tell you, I don't know if you feel oppressed, but Jesus was oppressed and He spoke not a word. I don't know if you feel like an outsider, but Jesus had come to be the center of religious life for Israel and the world. And when they crucified Him, they crucified Him as an outsider outside the city gate. It says He came to His own and His own did not receive Him. You you say, Jesus didn't know what it's like to be unloved, to be rejected. He was rejected by the very people He came to save. Don't misunderstand that He knows you. You feel misunderstood. So did He. He was misunderstood by the world. He was misunderstood by His followers. He was misunderstood in His identity. And He was misunderstood in His mission. Let's look again in Isaiah Chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely He has borne our grief, our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken and smitten by God, afflicted. We didn't understand what He came to do. Verse 5, but He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the punishment that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity 
of us all. This was his mission to seek and to save that which was lost, to come and die and take our sins, the full bore wrath of God on himself, on our behalf, and to rise. Look at verse 10. It says, excuse me, verse, uh, I'm skipping around here. I'm I'm in Isaiah 56, it's my problem, y'all bear with me. Verse 10 is correct. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's to die and rise from the dead. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he was poured out, or he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with transgressors, he was crucified between two thieves. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for their transgressors. The scripture says now that Jesus lives to make intercession for us. It was clear in Isaiah, but he was misunderstood in his mission. So it's a struggle people had in his day. And I I think it could be a struggle that we have in our day. And in particular... In every culture, there are misunderstandings of Jesus about His identity and about His mission. As we said earlier, sometimes we do it corporately, sometimes we do it personally. What we tend to do is make God in our own image. That's just what we tend to do when we misunderstand Jesus. We tend to just create an idol and think, well, Jesus must be like this. And oftentimes and in various places, we don't just make God in our image as humanity general. We make God in our image as specifically as possible. And in various places, this carries with it co-opting Jesus for our ethnic identity or, or maybe our national identity. And people do this everywhere. So here, here's just a picture of what that might look like around the world. So as you look at this, you've got African Jesus, and then this is Greek Jesus, and then that's Chinese Jesus, and then over here we have an Indian Jesus, and then we have a Russian Jesus, and then we have a Hispanic Jesus. And we see these pictures, and it's easy to understand why they're made. When most of these paintings were created, the people who created them never traveled more than a hundred miles from their own home. So what they would think is, well, God's Son, who's come to save, He must look just like us. He must look look just like us. And so that's not necessarily a bad thing. The issue is that African Jesus and Chinese Jesus and Greek Jesus and Russian Jesus and all these others, they can't save us. It's God's Son who's Israel's Messiah, this Middle Eastern man who is mainly Jewish, but in his line there's Ruth the Moabite, and then there's Rahab the Canaanite. And so these are pre-Muslim people groups. He is very very clearly this Middle Eastern guy. And it's not that this is necessarily a bad thing, but when we begin to see him as just like us, here's the danger. We then begin to drift in the missions world, we call it 
syncretism and we try to match the identity and mission of Jesus with the identity and mission of our culture. So we could talk about all cultures all day long and it would be so easy to do that. But let's talk primarily about how this happens in our culture. I'm going backwards there. So it happens this way. It happens this way. I called and texted about 15 friends this week, and I said, hey, I'm going to ask you a question anonymously, and I'm going to send you two pictures. And so I sent them the first picture that you guys see over here, and I said, who is that? And, and so everybody said, well, that's black Jesus. And I said, correct, you get a gold star. And then I sent them this picture, and 14 out of the 15, when I said, who is this, they all said, Jesus. And one guy said, oh, that's white Jesus. Now, I grew up in the 1970s when I was very young. This picture kind of became popular when folks like Muhammad Ali and other folks who were in the civil rights movement of that day would talk about black Jesus and there's got to be a savior for black culture. And honestly, in the town I grew up in, people would just laugh at that. But then in the town I grew up in, we would have this picture in every church and we'd just look and think, Sandy, blue-haired guy from the Middle East. That makes perfect sense. And see, the, the danger with either of these or any of the others, again, it's not, you might have one of these pictures in your home, and that's, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but the danger is we tend to make him look just like us. And so what we tend to do is think that he's here to meet our expectations. So Tim Keller says this, he says, if your God never disagrees with you, You might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So it doesn't mean if you got one of these pictures up that you're doing that, but it's a little bit strange in our culture that honestly, if you Google white Jesus and then you Google Jesus, almost all the same pictures come up. So that that might be a concern. I'm going to tell you that the, the concern that hits me is one that I grew up with. So there may be nobody else in this room that ever struggled with this, but I'll show you the one that I struggled with. And that's, that's American Jesus there, in case you, you couldn't tell by the flag. And so here's the issue. I grew up, and it wasn't the pastor at the church I grew up in's fault. It wasn't my family's fault. It's just kind of what naturally happened. I, I was thinking America's a Christian nation. Everybody's a Christian. I remember... One of my children, even when they were two or three years old, this is 13 years ago, and we were watching golf, and they said, I wonder where Tiger Woods goes to church. And I said, well, Tiger Woods doesn't go to church. He's not a Christian. And and they said, well, of course he does. He's American. And I just thought, oh, no. Oh, oh, no. There's this, praise God, she's on on a mission trip in Ukraine, so he's been very redemptive there. But here, here's, the, here's the issue. I thought he looked just like me. Um, I thought missions was kind of secondary, and I thought God was primarily going to do the work that he was going to do really in and through America. And if, if you think that way, I don't know if anyone does, but let me tell you, that's not the case. Now, praise God that we live here. Praise God for the freedoms we enjoy. Praise God for those of you who f- have fought and bled to allow us those freedoms. There have been... 300 million people 
saved in the last 10 years, and 290 million of those, 290 million were in the global south. It's, it's a danger that I face that we were just the center, and here's the danger. This picture represents real well that in my mind as a new believer, the flag was real big and the cross was real small. I didn't realize how great my sin issue was. I didn't realize how horrible the brokenness of the world around me was. And in my life, the flag had become real big and the cross had become real small. And that was the danger that I faced. Does Jesus love America? Let me say with passion, yes. Yes, he does. I've got a two-year-old that every time he answers yes, he answers that way with passion. He calls in the morning, we go get him out of bed. Are you ready for breakfast? Yes! Do you want to play with cars? Yes! Did you make a mess in your room? Yes! Did you make a mess in your diaper? Yes! Laura! See, we need to speak with passion. Does Jesus love America? Yes! Does Jesus love Egypt? Yes! Does he love Mexico? Does he love Morocco? Does he love Turkey? Does he love France? Yes! The gospel came through those places to get here. He's a global God. He's a global God. And I think sometimes, just like it was an issue for Israel, it was an issue for me. We misunderstand that Jesus hasn't come to make us a prominent global superpower, whether that's a corporate or national expectation. It certainly was for Israel. In fact, James and John said, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and on your left? John the Baptist was stuck in prison and he said, hey, are you the one or should we expect someone else? This isn't going how I thought it would. And see, here's the the reality. They didn't understand his mission. He had come to be Messiah. And one day Jesus did have a sign over his head that said, King of the Jews. And there was a man on his right and a man on his left and they were being crucified just like him. Those two thieves. So there's a danger of misunderstanding, but what if we are to understand his mission? What if we're to know and follow Jesus more? Well, we're told in Matthew 16, it's a mission for the church. Peter is your name. And on this rock, this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and we're almost done. So in front of me, I've got this diamond. I've got this diamond. And as you see in this diamond, there there are a lot of colors that go through when light shines on it. It's a beautiful thing. And the word we use for it is multifaceted. And the reason I want to talk about that today is because it connects really well to a word in Ephesians 3.10. So in In verse 7 of Ephesians 3, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone 
what is the plan of God, the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. What's this plan? What's this mystery? Verse 10, so that through the church, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, that through the church, the manifold or multifaceted wisdom of God, it's the Greek words are polypoikolos, many colors or differing colors, varying colors, that through the church from every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, the multifaceted wisdom of God might be shown The reality is that diamonds like that don't come easy, though. It usually takes intense heat and pressure underground for years and years and years. And under that pressure, the molecular structure of carbon begins to change, and it gets pressed together so tightly, and then it rises to the earth, and in the hands of a craftsman, it becomes that. So in a world of turmoil and in a country of turmoil, there's a lot of talk about reconciliation that I don't know will ever happen in this world or in this country, but in the church it must. Because that's how the manifold wisdom of God is expressed to the rulers and authorities. By the way, in the heavenly places, three chapters later, Paul would remind the church at Ephesus where there were riots and all kinds of things going on. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. And the church, when we're unified, when we love one another, see, we show Jesus as great. We show Jesus as great. So if we're to be the church, what does this look like? What does this look like? Why is this mission different than what we might have in our minds? It's because we're sent even as the Father sent Him. Our mission is to lay down our lives for our brothers, neighbors, and enemies, and make disciples of the nations while teaching the gospel with grace and truth. It's a kingdom of love. And sometimes when we hear love, we go, well, what does that even mean? Well, 1 Corinthians says it means that we would bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, that we would not be jealous or seek our own, that we wouldn't boast or envy. See, John 15, 13, Jesus said it means this, there's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. 1 John three sixteen, he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for others. If we don't, if we don't, no matter what message we're speaking, we're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. See, some folks hear this and they go, right, but if we love them, we got to tell them the truth. Well, it's true. We do have to proclaim the gospel, but there's a danger that we tell the truth in a way that's not loving, so much so that Paul told the church in Ephesus, speak the truth in love. And I'll just push on that a little bit. We say if we love them, we got to tell them the truth. Well, my friend back in East Texas told his wife the truth. He wasn't loving her real well. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suppose that if you've been married long at all, and your wife has asked you about outfits for a lot, maybe one or two of you out there have not been completely truthful as you loved your wife. Because the answer is, yes, it looks great. 
And mine always does, so y'all better back off me. But some of y'all, some of y'all, them, not me, honey, y'all might have done that. So how, how do we do this? What does it look like? What does it look like? most amazing thing happened when I was putting this together, core value slides just started popping up. It looks like surrendering. If any man would come after me, he says in Matthew 16, 24, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. So we have three core values. And the first is that we would be a people who surrender to Jesus. We just surrender to Jesus. And that means to lay our lives down. If we understand Him, that's what we'll do. We don't just surrender to Jesus. We do that in community. We call ourselves community on mission. So we can't leave without you hearing this. If you feel like maybe you misunderstand Jesus, which we all do in all kinds of ways, the way to not misunderstand is to get in the Word. Get in the Word, read the Gospel, study them and know them, but don't just do it on your own. When we do it on our own, we tend to, tend to make it be about our agenda or about ourselves. But we value community here. There's information out in the hallway. You can be part of a small group and read the Word with people, understand them more, follow them better. David and Gary will be leading small group leader training last Saturday of this month. And then the third thing is that there is a mission, and it's a mission of proclaiming the gospel to our city and the world, loving people and laying down our lives. You can go to For the City from our website and find out all kinds of ways that we as God's people can be on mission together. Listen, as we close our time this morning I want to invite up a man who he and his wife, as they raise their sons, he understands and embodies these core values of surrender, community, and mission. He laid aside a great lifestyle in the States, and now he and his family serve on the Arabian Peninsula. Would you welcome Tim Fincher? So I, I asked Tim... A couple of questions this week to talk through. So, Tim will be sharing stories of mission tonight in 6.30 and 3.03. So, they've got a great story to tell. I hope you'll come and hear it. But right now, Tim, um, tell us, having gone to the mission field and, and having served for now seven years on the field, how, how did you misunderstand Jesus before you went? Well, where do I start? It's really a question. Um, and, and obviously, I am confident that I inadequately understand him now. Sure. Um, but praise God for his patience and grace. Uh, but living and working in a different region of the world has really challenged me to compare and contrast not only religious teachings, but the lives of the various respected religious leaders. And it's interesting to note that in distinction, Jesus Christ didn't come to bring a message from God. He was his message. And in contrast to other leaders, as well as to ourselves, we note that, that he never accumulated wealth or worldly uh, treasure. Foxes have holes. Birds of the, es- of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He never sought earthly power or to try to enforce his own rule. My kingdom is not of this world. For I have come from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me. And he never pursued pleasures of earth. 
my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so above all, I think as we stated a few minutes ago, he was unselfish. His teaching was self-centered, but yet his behavior, selfless. He succeeded where we always fall. We always fail. When wronged, he never retaliated. When he suffered, he made no threats. He would never grew resentful, uh, never irritable. To borrow from John Stott, Jesus was sinless because he was selfless. Such selflessness is love, and God is love. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I think that living in different cultures, with different traditions, teachings, teachers, has really helped me further understand that the unique purity of Christ's character, which was thoroughly consistent with his teachings, that is what gives credence when he claims, because I live, you will live also. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And I think understanding the purity of his life is something that I, I didn't ever give the, the true credence to and understanding of and value to uh, previously. Wow. wow. That's great. That's great. And then next question, you, you're an insider because you're still one of us, but you're sent out by us. So it's kind of unique when you're outside a culture. You can kind of look in and maybe see blind spots that you didn't see before. Are there ways that you feel like, maybe not specifically TBC or even the church in America, but more broadly the church in the West, are there ways that we misunderstand Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what I've been struggling with, and uh, maybe some people struggle along with me and can identify with it. Um, but it's difficult to fully understand the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. I think a step at a time, I'm beginning to, to fully understand, um, or to more fully, that I can contribute absolutely nothing to my salvation. Mm-hmm. And yet my flesh uh, resents this fact. But there is nothing that I can even contribute. And then furthermore, he is solely sufficient for life. For when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he who believes in me will never hunger. And he who comes to me will never thirst. That corners me really into asking, as Isaiah did, Why do I spend my money on what is not bread and my labor on what does not satisfy? If he is the sole source of life, why do I pursue lesser things? Mm -hmm. Challenging and good words. And as as we close today and we pray, uh, my prayer this week has been, my prayer going forward is, God, would you show me how I misunderstand Jesus as I look in your word with your people together? Would you help me to see? Would you help me to repent? And would you help me to run to him, my Savior and King? Let's pray together. God, thank you for Tim and Nino and their boys. God, thank you for these words from him today that um, challenge, convict, encourage us to seek you as as the one who satisfies not only our sin debt, but the deepest longings of our heart. God, we want to know you more. We want to follow you more. We want to trust you and walk in obedience to you. 
So God, we pray you'd have your way with us. And God, we pray as your body here in Temple, Texas, that we would be like a diamond that as light goes through it, it would be reflected in a way that the world just can't look away, that they marvel at its beauty and that they want the source of that. God, we thank you for the manifold wisdom of God that would send the gospel all the way to us. And Father, we pray for your glory in your church and we pray for peace to reign in this world. Let your kingdom come. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.